Brought to you by JMR Rentals, professional digital cinema and broadcast equipment rentals in Brooklyn, New York. JMRNY.com. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and joining me via Zoom today, the man behind ActuallyPaid.com, Mr. William Hammond. Welcome. Jay, how's it going? Good to be back. And <laughs> It's great to have you back, man. We're going to talk about some movies. We got a lot of movies to we talk do. about. We do, and, and, and that's, that's a good thing because it's been so long since we've had to, a lot of movies to go over. These are some actual, we got uh, some more mainstream films and some indie films as well, which is cool. Um, some indie, and this is going to be all documentaries. So we're going to talk all documentaries for this episode. Um, I reviewed one recently. I gave a great review to. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But first, what is our first movie to discuss? It's called Street Gang, uh, How We Got to Sesame Street. And uh, I was immediately drawn to it because a couple of years ago there was a documentary about Mr. Rogers neighborhood called won't you be my neighbor. And as a kid growing up in the eighties, you know, like these, these are the shows, these were the formative shows that that first documentary about, about Fred Rogers was a so beautiful and insightful and tear inducing. I had to just see whether what, what it was going to be done with a look at Sesame street. Now this one's not as hard hitting, but it, Despite that, it's still a really good look at the formative years of the show, not just how it was created, but how the entire children's television workshop was created, um, how John Stone and uh, Joan, Joan Gans Cooney got together to create this show, how they integrated education, how Jim Henson and Frank Oz got the Muppets involved, some of the stories behind the more iconic songs like these are the people in your neighborhood and being green there are some slightly i guess i don't, I don't know if darker is the right word moments to it, but, but but certainly not sunshiny moments that all kind of just aids in this nice little entry level exploration of how one of the most enduring television pro programs was created i mean i mean we're talking a show that's that's been around for a little more than 50 years now i, I don't think i think half the nation Hat, at this point has never lived in a world without Sesame Street. There were some things that seemed patently obvious that never even occurred to me when I, when I watched the show as a kid. Like just the fact that it takes place on a block, that it's outside in the street. That was 100% intentional because the creators, uh, John Stone and, and, and uh, Joan Gans Cooney, they wanted to basically appeal to inner city youth who wouldn't necessarily have a playground to go to or a suburban sprawling social life to grow up in. They wanted to basically imbue them with uh, neighborhood and urban pride from the very beginning. And as a kid, that's just something I, that I would just gloss over, didn't, didn't even register for me. But I, I can only imagine now, especially in the 60s and 70s, how important that was to a kid growing up in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco or, or any major city that didn't necessarily have the preschool or after school resources that someone like me growing up in the suburbs had. So 
some something that just was a thing to me it was just there could have been one of the most profound things ever and that just blew my mind a little bit one question i had though so i haven't seen the picture yet is when does is it just sort of sesame street begins or is it how how long a span of time does it cover um this is actually kind of one of the few critiques i have of the film uh apart from the fact that that you know it's never going to do anything that looks remotely untoward um there's a little bit of a lack of focus on as to who the movie's about rather as opposed to what the movie's about um because they they talk about things like uh john stone uh you know spending his whole life with depression but they don't mention how he actually passed away of als the film essentially ends with jim henson's death in in the, in the early 90s uh, and that and that famous scene of Big Bird and, and Kermit singing Being Green at his funeral, that's basically where the story ends. So, so it goes from the formation in the late 60s up until about 1990 uh, when, when Jim Henson passes. Um, and while the film will never court controversy, it isn't afraid to basically make you cry because they do deal with things like um, the original Gordon on the show, uh, who uh matt robinson who i never knew was holly robinson pete's father i was like <laughs> roosevelt franklin was one of my favorite characters i never i never knew he was the voice of roosevelt franklin um and then there was there was a whole falling out with, with about that character that forced him to leave the show and then they replaced him and kind of as a tribute eventually renamed gordon and gave him robinson as the as a last name and then of course they do uh deal with the what is still to this day the saddest moment in television history, the death of Mr. Hooper, uh, Will Lee. Like, like, I still cry watching that scene. Thir nearly 40 years later, because Will Lee died about four months after I was born. But the show always existed in reruns on PBS, so I watched episodes with Mr. Hooper well into my elementary school days. So I was aware of him, and when they aired reruns, they were always at a sequence. So sometimes he'd be there, sometimes he wouldn't be. And then when they would rerun the episode where, where, he, where they address his death, I was just like, oh no. Oh. But it actually, it's one of the most cathartic moments in media history, not just television, just all of media. That, that's where this movie really succeeds is in how they taught the lessons. Like the creation of, Count von Count to teach numerology, not just teaching you how to know numbers, but how to engage with them and how to how to uh, comprehend them in different contexts, that sort of thing. Like like the the integration of Spanish and sign language. When I was a kid, that was all I ever learned of the two, but that that was what the show meant to me and millions of others. So to get that little insight into it to, to to see how carol spinney evolved big bird as a character to you know hear how being green was written and, and how the inspiration went those are the things that you know per the production company that is the, that is the chicken soup for the soul that's what you actually need it's comfort food it sounds like a pretty solid recommendation for you so we're going to move on to the next uh movie now, this is a movie that I reviewed, um, and it's an indie documentary. Uh, it's I think it's streaming on one of the Amazon uh, affiliates right now, but it's called Martha, A Picture Story. 
And it's about the, this woman, Martha Cooper, who is a photojournalist who captured graffiti in the inner cities uh, as well as graffiti artists. She wrote this book. Uh, she started out in New York City. Uh, she's actually been all over the world, but her, a lot of her first book comes from work that she captured in New York. And she, she co-authored a book called Subway Art, which was published in Europe after they couldn't find somebody to publish it here. And it kind of became this underground book that went from graffiti artist to graffiti artist. And she became like a cult figure in the world of graffiti art. And when she went to Europe, uh, all of these people recognize her. And now this woman, uh, now she's probably in her 70s. And the picture starts with her in the subways uh, somewhere in Europe. I think it's in Germany. And she's following graffiti artists around and uh, talking to these people and shooting, you know, capturing what they're doing illegally. Like, so she's running under cover of night. She's, you know, it's like Grandma Ninja, you know, <laughs> running through the streets of Europe, capturing all this stuff. And it's it's so inspiring. It's a, a lovely documentary by Selena Miles. I highly recommend it. I won't, don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to spoil it. If you can, I called it the documentary we need right now, which they actually wound up putting on, on the poster, which was kind of cool. Uh, it might be our first poster quote, but it's a great film. If you can, if you can definitely check it out. Our next film is also another indie doc called Dope is Death. Dope is Death is a documentary about the Black Panthers and a, a group called the Young Lords, which is essentially the Puerto Rican version of the Black Panthers, uh, in New York in the 70s, in Harlem and the, and the South Bronx. There was a huge epidemic starting from the late 60s throughout the 70s and uh, even up to the early 80s of heroin in New York City. These two groups, the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, wanted to do more for their community than the state was doing or the city was doing. So they actually formed a drug treatment center where they actually took over Lincoln Hospital uptown and created a drug treatment center. And then when people were mainly getting things like methadone as treatments, which just kind of turned them from heroin addicts into methadone addicts, they actually discovered uh, through a Canadian doctor acupuncture. And they started doing acupuncture treatments for heroin addicts and getting people off of heroin, which, you know, they would get people off of heroin. And then sometimes the patients would become practitioners. They were also educating people about politics and about the community at the time. There's a lot of controversy in, in this documentary. It covers a lot of ground from roughly like 1968 to the mid 80s and some present today. Um, there's a lot of unexpected twists and turns, stuff that I did not expect. I thought it was just about drug treatment, but it turns out it's about more like the Black Panther movement. It's about certain seminal figures in the Black Panther Party. And, you know, you get things like armed car robbery. Uh, you get uh, the civil rights movement. Fugitives on the Run, it's really um, more than meets the eye, and it's a lot of doc, but it's very, I think it's very well done, and it's it's a part of history that you don't see taught in schools. So I, I think it's definitely very educational, especially if you weren't familiar, especially with New York City at that period of time. All right, let's go for the next film we got. Now, this is, this is another interesting film. Uh, and I believe it won best. I now you're Bill is our Oscar correspondent. Um, and if you haven't checked out, checked out his blog, actually He goes deep into the Oscars, uh, like no one you have seen before. 
an absolute uh, commando full raid on uh, this past year's Oscars. This film, My Octopus Teacher. I haven't seen it. Give us a rundown. All right. It's available on Netflix for anyone who wants to watch it right now. And I think any documentary winner is worth seeing. So, so it gets a recommendation just based on that, just, just for context. But I always make a goal not only to see all the nominees in every field, but in areas like documentary feature where there's a short list, I try to see the entire short list as well to kind of see where the documentary branch's head is at because it's the hardest to figure out every year. So out of the 15 films that were shortlisted, I ranked My Octopus Teacher 13. <laughs> so not only the worst among the nominees, but the worst, one of the worst overall. It, there, there are some beautiful moments here. So here, here's what it's about. A nature documentarian named Craig Foster, he's done a lot of Nat Geo stuff in, in, throughout the 80s and 90s. He kind of had a mental breakdown and basically took a sabbatical. Went, went home to, to South Africa, went through a lot of therapy and decided to start diving again in a kelp forest near his home. And he spends the next year documenting this octopus's life, how she adapts, how she escapes from prey, how she hunts, how she lives her life. And he becomes very attached to her in a way that almost suggests therapy. And there is some beautiful camera work here, just absolutely gorgeous underwater photography. I will, I will, for as much as I don't like the film overall, I will never knock that. It's gorgeous. But we've talked before about the observer effect. That goes out the window here. And in a way, it gets kind of disturbing because when you stack it against the other four nominees, you have Collective from Romania, which is about basically a real-life spotlight situation where a newspaper exposes massive government corruption in the wake of a nightclub fire that killed dozens of people. You have Crip Camp, which is about the history of a bunch of handicapped people coming together to fight for their rights and eventually get the Americans with Disabilities Act passed. You have the mole agent where uh, an old man goes undercover at a nursing home to try to expose abuse, but ends up giving voice to an ignored sector of the population. You have time, the, the, the wonderful Garrett Bradley directing this uh, combination of home video and current affairs footage of a woman fighting to get her husband out of prison. And then you have a vanity project where a guy comes about two steps away from making out with an octopus. I'm sorry. It's, it's comical how just completely irrelevant this film is. Like it's very much Craig Foster's story and you know what? Good for him. He, he got, he worked through his issues, but he talks about trying to be a better father to his son. His son's in the film for five minutes. I, I don't think you succeeded on that one, mate. This, is, this was the part that really disturbed me because it's marketed as a film for children. It's given a TV PG rating. Even during the Oscars broadcast, as soon as it won, they cut to commercial and Google had an ad about how this film will inspire kids to learn about octopi, uh, octopuses. And I was like, did you guys not see the film? Because... Craig makes it very clear early on that the lifespan of a common octopus is just over a year. And we're going to see that octopus die. And it's going to be really disturbing. If your kids cried at Bambi, you are screwed if you sit them down to watch this. It is horrific. I almost cried. It's like, no, I do not want to watch this octopus get eaten by a pajama shark. No. It's like, you have scenes where he puts in this Jaws sound-alike music when it's getting pursued and having one of its arms ripped off by a shark. This is not for kids. This is nightmare fuel. 
what are you doing and then yes when the when the octopus gives birth we then get to watch it slowly decay and get picked apart by bottom feeders until a pajama shark just casually scoops it up in his mouth and and just swims away chomping on it what the hell your kids will be crying for a month what are you doing so spoilers for uh, my octopus teacher <laughs> i mean to, to be to be fair he spoils it himself five minutes in is this a recommendation for you it, it again it's a recommendation from the standpoint of this was nominated and it won you need to see it just to see what the voters were thinking and I will, I will say flat out, this is one where I very much think the voters got it wrong. And this is because this is not March of the Penguins. This is not heartwarming in any way. There, I could only have voted for it on the quality of the underwater photography, which again, mind-blowingly gorgeous. I, I will not take a cent away from that. But again, compared to the insightful, heavy-hitting, and poignant, relevant documentaries that it was up against, the fact that it won just like it's one of the lesser uh mistakes of the entire oscars evening um and and oddly enough there was basically consensus am among the award circuit that this was going to win like very rarely does is there any agreement on what's the best documentary basically every guild and uh award ceremony that dealt with documentaries if it was nominated it won leading up to the oscar that's very rare um and so so in that respect yes i do recommend seeing it it's an hour and a half of your time off of netflix but ignore the rating and do not show it to your kids good to know we're going to move on to our next which is also on netflix now this is a documentary series called pretend it's a city which is basically Martin Scorsese following humorist and woman about town, Fran Lebowitz, uh, with a camera. So Fran Lebowitz has been around for a long time. If you were a Law & Order fan, you saw her play a judge now and again. She's also popped up on television. She does speaking appearances all over the country. Uh, sh she is a uh, sort of a modern-day Oscar Wilde-type figure essayist. She's a little bit of a deep-cut kind of character. It's, it's almost like people who are kind of like New York famous, people like Spalding Gray, you know, was and stuff. So my one question is, if you don't live here, will you get this series? Because it's a lot about New York City. And if you're not a New Yorker, I laughed through uh, most of the episodes when I saw it. But if you're not a New Yorker, will you get this? And I think I can answer that because while my family lives upstate, and I've been to the city a handful of times, uh, mostly to see shows or to go to auditions or whatnot. Yes, like th this is a th this is a show that will resonate because Fran Lebowitz, like you said, Spalding Gray, uh, Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain. She she's in that sphere of just pure wit, and uh, she often makes appearances on Bill Maher's show, uh, which is filmed out here in LA. She was, she was actually on the show just a couple of weeks ago promoting this series. And even if you're not a New Yorker, what you can appreciate is her attitude, her blunt honesty, and her sense of humor. I, 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 think, of her, I think of her as another version of George Carlin at times. Uh, slightly less foul-mouthed, but, but that, was, that was his shtick. And it's this idea of sage-like blunt wisdom and honesty where you don't care who you offend, you're not trying to offend anybody, but 
you're just saying you're just observing something and immediately reacting to it in a way that's funny it's like there's a part in the series where she basically talks about you know all the all the people on the subway who you know are on their phones or you know or not talking to each other she's like okay you know what, what what's the what's the old quote hell is other people like she personifies this she shows us like how you can be a deeply humanist thinker while hating humanity she's interesting too because she's not She's uh, something of a Luddite. She doesn't have a smartphone. Yep, she, she has which, no technology of any kind. And which she covers. She's very much into books. She's an avid reader. Um, but I, what, I, what I loved about it was the camaraderie between her and Scorsese and like sort of his love for her. He just adore, He just seems to adore her and laughs at everything she says. Um, and then she would be, there's segments where she's on stage with people like Spike Lee. Uh, and they're, you know, and Spike Lee, you know, he's, he is also one of those very honest type of people. Um, but like the, just the chemistry and she's so quick. Like she's one of those people who like, if you, you will never get one over on friendly boys. The, the, the best one I remember, uh, someone from the audience is asking a question like, are you suffering from? Yes. <laughs> just, yeah, yes. I'm just going to interview and say, whatever you're saying, yes, I suffer from it. It's like, because that's what, that's the human experience. That's what we all do. The, you know, it, for someone who doesn't live in New York, there may be moments of disconnect when she's like truly like just laudatory about the city itself, like the plaques in the, in the sidewalks and the architecture. And that, that may lose you in a couple of spots, but that's just a person expressing love for their home. You know, like it's, a, it's the same as when, you know, some random cowboy tells you not to mess with Texas. It's the same kind of basic home pride that even if you don't understand it you get the the sentiment and that's fine with me so i, I watched it and i noticed right away that it's a pre-pandemic new york yeah <laughs> it's it's pre-covid nobody's wearing masks nobody's social it's it's very much new york as it was pre-2020 so i would be interested if they do a second season and what her observations would be about new york in the pandemic and quarantine and all that stuff I mean, if nothing else, I can imagine the owner of the Players Club being, oh, thank God, so I can open, I can turn on the lights and do something. Thank you for paying money to rent out my hall. <laughs> I've actually been there, man. I, I've, I've, I've done events and stuff there and uh, meetings. And no, I haven't been there in well over a year now. But uh, I would love to go back myself. And I would say that, you know, if you're, uh, if you, if you, if you're, if you dig wit, if you dig quick wit and people who are, are, are whip smart and have like a, a sharp edge to them and you, you and if you're especially if you're a New Yorker, this is a must see for me. And, and, the thing, and the thing is, like I said, I've only been in New York in, in the city of a handful of times, but I've had that sense of awe about Grand Central Terminal that she has. I've seen the human flow of Times Square just like she has. And yes, the last time I was there to go to a show, I actually tried to, av I tried to avoid Times Square on my way back just to, just to not deal with it. I was like, like again, th this happy curmudgeon is how I would, would deem her. And that's kind of, I mean, she criticized this idea of finding yourself in other people and other characters literary, but, but that's what I relate to is like, I was like, it's it's almost like the 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 slogan from clerics like like the job would be great if it weren't for the customers humanity would be great if it weren't for all the people you know so, yeah she's and, she's also she's one of those people that expresses 
things that you've thought better than you could probably ever exactly. express them. Right. Whenever, whenever you say for want of better phrase, Framley Woods has the phrase. Right. All right, man, we're going to wrap up. So for those who want to read you or see you, where can they find you on the web? What's your website? What's your Twitter? As always, uh, the website is actuallypaid.com. Um, we now have a Twitter feed. Uh, please follow at actually underscore paid. And uh, similarly, you can follow at underscore at actually underscore paid on Medium uh, to get the content as well. And that's all we got for you today. Thanks so much for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more movie reviews and more of our content, visit noRestfortheweekendpodcast.com. And don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Bill Hammond, and our sponsor, JMR Rentals. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Yeah.